Hey, what's up, brother? Yo, how you doing? You're good. Oh, your cam's way out of whack. My kid loves playing at my desk. <laughs> it's terrible. Lovely. Welcome to yet another podcast from iAnimate. I'm your host, Larry Vasquez, and joining me once again is Rick Arroyo. How you doing, Rick? Hey, doing great. How you guys doing? Doing great, man. Ready to rock it tonight with another great guest. Oh, yeah. um, we'll have Tal Schwartzman today joining us, talking about Rise of the Guardian. We're going to talk about Rise of the Guardians, but we're also going to we're going to dig deep and, and pick through his his experience and and his knowledge. So absolutely, he's actually got quite a few movies underneath his belt from DreamWorks that have that are pretty diverse. I think we're going to get some some good conversation, kind of about yeah. his background in regards to that. So let me tip my hats also to the instructors because I mean. It, it it takes a lot of you know uh, dedication and, and really expertise to help someone grow as an animator and, mm-hmm. and the instructors. I mean, big up to, to the guys and. No, that's a good point though, because I know the instructors haven't taken some classes. They aren't just here just to put in some time and leave. They definitely connect with the students, and there is a, a lot more that goes into it than just the time. There's a lot of energy and the, and emotion that goes into it. So yeah, definitely a. Big shout out to the instructors as well. We've got a great, great group here. Well, uh, let's pull on our, our guest here tonight. Let's see if we can get him on here. Tal, are you with us? Yeah, I'm with you guys. All right, all right. Um, really appreciate you joining us tonight. How you doing? I'm doing all right, man. How are you guys doing? Doing real good. Have you had a chance to meet Rick? Yeah, I met Rick at the CTN. We manned the same booth together. That's right. That's yeah. right. You were there and supporting iAnimate. Absolutely. All right. <laughs> How's things going? Uh, it's all right. Late night at work, but uh, back home now, so it's good. Yeah, you just started Dragons 2, right? Yeah, I've been on it for, let's see, as long as I've been back from vacation, which I think is around two months now, maybe a little bit more. Oh, wow, okay. It's been a little bit then. Wow, time flies. Yep. Now, you didn't work on the first one, right? No, no. At that time, I was on uh, Shrek Forever After. Okay. Now, I was just checking out your bio again before we jumped on here, and I noticed that you have a good mix of some movies under your belt that are pretty diverse, from Shrek Forever After to Monsters vs. Aliens, Kung Fu Panda, and then now Rise of the Guardians. Um, yeah. So, yeah, ha- any one of them in particular kind of help prepare you for Dragons 2 or kind of just your whole <laughs> career up to this uh, point? <laughs> uh, I, I mean, not really, because most of the stuff I've done has been biped. Even Panda, which was um, it was anamorphic, but it was still mostly bipeds. Okay. Uh, I did a little bit of quadruped on Shrek Forever After with Donkey, but not much. So um, this is the first film where there's, um, you know, wings, and not just wings, because it's not just a bird. It's something that we need to interpret that flies a little bit like a bird, a little bit like a bat, and mix together and make a dragon. And then add to that the quadruped legs and the tail. So, uh, no, I don't think anything's prepared me for that. <laughs> it's something special. That's cool. Part of the um, the idea of animation, always learning, huh? Yeah. It, it was funny. Uh, it was coming onto the show my first week uh, doing uh, flight school, which is this kind of time period where uh, the Hoka on the show, Simon Otto, he kind of takes you through two weeks of um, a boot camp of sorts of animation training for flight. And he teaches you how, you know, like flight is supposed to work with birds. And then we try to interpret that into um, three different exercises for the dragons. Mm. So it was the first time that I was kind of, oh, crap. Uh, what the hell do I do? It was like <laughs> the first time where it's not, you don't know it off the bat. And it's just literally you have to be like, damn, I got to learn something. <laughs> so uh, it, it, there was like a panic there for like one or two days. I was like, what the hell am I doing here? What the hell are they doing? And uh, yeah, it, it worked itself out after the first week, and I became a little bit more confident and kind of comfortable with what you know flight is supposed to be like. Kind of bring you back to your uh, student days. Uh, yeah, and that's a really crappy feeling. I gotta be honest with you. <laughs> like I was looking at my students, thinking, "Geez, now I know what you guys feel like every day you come to my class. You must really hate me." So uh, it was, it was, uh, yeah. I came over to my wife. And I was like, "Damn, I don't. Know, this might be it." Maybe it'll last another week, and that's it. We'll see what happens. <laughs> Make you uh, give a little more grace and uh, patience with your students, huh? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> well, uh, tell you what, let's jump into your uh, your background a little bit. Um, I noticed that you had studied over at Sheridan in Canada. Yeah, I did the full three years there. Um, graduated in 2000. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, unfortunately, uh, that very year, pretty much 2D died. Like I studied classical animation and that's what I wanted to do. Mm. And then that year, for some reason, um, all the studios kind of shut down. Fox animation was done. Like I actually called them up that summer and be like, so can I drop off my reel? And they're like, well, everybody's gone. It's like, okay, so when are they coming back? I'm like, no, 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 they're <laughs> gone. Wow. Uh, and then, you know, Disney wasn't hiring. So, um, yeah, uh, slowly I, I did a little bit of commercial work, a little bit of freelance stuff, and then found myself doing CG stuff slowly. Were you able to make the transition over pretty easy or um, were you hesitant having just spent three years now learning 2D? Yeah, I wasn't really into it. Um, I really, really wasn't into it. I very much loved 2D and that's kind of what I wanted to do. And then um, the problem is I just, there was, there was almost no work except for really low commercial stuff. And I wasn't really interested in that. And then um, I had the opportunity to get picked up by um, a company later on called IDT Entertainment, which turned into Stars and a few other stuff. They bought a whole bunch of companies. And um, I kind of dug what they were kind of selling, like the idea. And I was kind of like, well, I'll try it. I'll teach myself a little bit of 3D and see how it goes. And once I started teaching myself uh, kind of what's involved, I really kind of got into it and really dug the idea of like the modeling and all the rigging and stuff and just what can be done. And, uh, you know, I, I wasn't sure if it was for me, but I wanted to try it out. Okay. Now I, there's two segues here. I can kind of take this. So I'm going to try okay. to see if I can get them both in. Um, you mentioned you have a little bit, you said rigging a little bit, you have a little bit of rigging background as well. No, I don't. I mean, um, I, I mean, I didn't learn any of this stuff. It's all self taught, but I think what's really important that, a lot of places don't do or students don't understand today. It's like when you did 2D and you went to school, you learned everything. You learned how to do character design, um, which is kind of equivalent to modeling and, you know, motion. I guess there's no real equivalent to articulation, which is rigging. But, um, you know, you did layout, you did, you know, cleanup, you did everything, color. And it helped you understand the pipeline. And I think that was very important to know kind of what came before you, what's after you. And I think in CG, it's uh, equally important, if not more, simply because if there's a problem with the rig, you need to be able to convey it in a way that it makes sense to the TDs. Mm -hmm. And um, when I started kind of teaching myself modeling and rigging, uh, especially now at work, when I need to talk to the riggers, I have a common language with them. Mm -hmm. So I can go in and say, well, I have this equivalent in Maya or soft homage that I, I can do. Can you give me something like that? And most of the time, I can get to a solution pretty quick with them because of that common language. That's neat. This Okay, this kind of segues into my other... I had a recent conversation with uh, Samantha Youssef, who had kind of taught some uh, figure drawing classes through iAnimate and is now doing them as well online. And kind of just talking about the 2D background and how, you know, you look at movie like Tangled and how it just looks so good. And to me, that's one of the 3D films that felt really 2D in a way as well. And I think part of it, just having that influence with someone like a Glenn Keane, who I, I remember watching some of the um, outtakes or some of the things that the guys were talking about there who would say they would show in their dailies here and they, they're thinking their shot's looking good. And all of a sudden Glenn Keane would draw over it. And all of a sudden they're looking at their shot from a completely new perspective because they didn't have necessarily that 2D background. And so just how the influence of 2D can still play knowing some of that into the 3D. Do you feel like that's been the case with you as well, having had that background in 2D? Um, I think on certain films, yes. Uh, I found in certain films, like on the first Panda, some shots, I would actually animate it uh, in the software. We have a drawing software, like a drawing part of our software of Emo. And I would draw, um, especially if it was really broad, I would do the keys in that and then show that to my Hoka. And yeah, I mean, it was efficient, but never say that you need to be a good artist, like a good draftsman to be a good animator. I mean, mm -hmm. terms, but I, I still think it's a bit for me. Yeah. I guess as far as not even having to do the drawovers, but just having that 2d understanding where you're, um, I remember talking with, uh, Dave Hubert at CTN. He was looking at some of my stuff and he was just mentioning that, you know, me not having a 2d background, you have to consciously think of things differently because in the 2d, you had a blank slate. You had a, when you drew an eye, you had to purposefully draw it in a certain way. Well, when you're in the 3d realm, the eyes there. And so sometimes you don't necessarily think to shape it maybe differently. And so I'm thinking where you're coming back from a 2d background 
having that appeal, knowing some of those principles that are taught still in CG today, but maybe not necessarily as thought upon when you're working because, you know, some of us don't have that 2D background like someone like you. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, actually, because um, it's funny. Uh, I mean, you brought up Guardians. Guardians tended to be very realistic, but now on um, on Dragons, uh, Simon said he kind of wants to take it a little bit more broad. So even when the characters kind of the characters even like look down or left and right, he wants us to kind of shape the eyes like we would in 2D, mm. where you kind of scale it and make it a little bit more maybe instead of circular, more oval. So to maybe make it a little bit more graphic. Um, so I mean, yeah, I think it helps, and I think it. it kind of adds a graphic sensibility to the stuff that you do. And it's, I think it's important to remember and keep in mind that, yeah, we work in 3D and it's a 3D object in this software, but in the end, it's all flat. Mm-hmm. Like, really flat. Even when you deal on 3D, like in stereo, it's still flat, even though there's a depth to it. It still remains as a flat element. Then it goes to DVD. So keeping that kind of graphic element in mind, is, I think it's a benefit, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Just kind of a neat subject as I was kind of thinking about it and just the benefit that the two can have and kind of bridging that, you know, having that background. And I was looking at your your uh, bio, noticing that you had that there. Rise of the Guardians. We had a recent interview with Alexis Winneroy, and he mentioned that he worked solely on Tooth Fairy. Was there anybody that you worked on primarily or you work on a couple different characters? Uh, it's funny. I actually worked on... Primarily one character, which was Sophie. You remember her? The little girl, blonde hair, Jamie's little sister. Yes, yes. So what happened was is um, when the movie started, it was on it pretty early, right after Panda 2. And um, I was supposed to be in the Jack team. And then there was just something about the Guardians that I couldn't click with. Like, I didn't grow up with those characters. I didn't grow up with Santa Claus or Jack Frost or mm-hmm. Tooth Fairy, really. So I didn't have that connection to them. And I couldn't relate. And um, I just had my daughter was born like a year earlier, so she was around that age. And I kind of saw her, and I was like, oh, I kind of relate to that. And it's a good reference, and I kind of find that interesting. So I kind of levitated toward that character. And then uh, Gabe, the Hoka of the show, was really cool, and he kind of gave me ownership of the character. So I ended up doing, I want to say, 70% of the character. So I got to do a good chunk of it on on screen. That's a good point there, because you're mentioning here, you know, not having much of a connection until there was a character that kind of jumped out of you or jumped out at you due to your situation in life, you know, being a dad there. How does some of that stuff play effect in your animation with the character? Were you able to things that you can, you go, Oh, I knew I animated this shot because I was gleaning that from, you know, interacting with my daughter. It's funny. Um, because I think a lot of the, a lot of the animators in the show were talking about how difficult it was to animate on that show, but I found the like the guardians or the grown-ups not more difficult than we usually did uh what i discovered on the show was actually animating the children was the biggest challenge for me because we as adults i mean you i mean you know you're your dad larry and it's like people that don't have kids don't understand sometimes that um the way kids think is so different <laughs> yeah they don't have the filters that we have society hasn't kind of infected them with that stuff yet and just the energy they have when they move is so different so you can't really get into a recording room record reference of yourself pretending to be a eight-year-old or four-year-old the energy isn't there like even your center of gravity is different even the way you perceive stuff is very very different even the way you sit and pose yourself you don't have the same flexibility they do you might have an idea of what a cute kid might look like but it's never exactly what they would do so for me like I would try to close out a shot with Sophie and then I would go home and shoot reference with my daughter and my wife. And when I would see a pose of my daughter, I'm like, I never would have thought of doing it like that. And it's just the energy and the speed or the, the things that would, would stop or would stop from doing something. So I kind of found that I would try to see what she would do, find a way to incorporate that because, you know, you can't ask her to act it out. <laughs> It, it was interesting to put her in scenarios that were relatable for the film. Like there was a shot where, I don't know if you remember, um, we were kind of uh, looking at this flower opening in, in Easterland and she's kind of looking and he's looking at yes. it. So I got this toy flower that we had and I was holding it. My wife was shooting us and getting my daughter to be interested in it. And it was just taking, putting her in a scenario that's relatable and then taking that reference and then trying to interpret that into animation was, was fun. And I think it brought something genuine to the performance. Instead of, you know, a 30, 
34, 30 year old animator locked in a room trying to be real <laughs> girl. So I was kind of happy we didn't come into that territory. <laughs> right on. Um, you know, one of the things we talked a lot about with uh, Alexis, and I want to get your take on that, um, is using reference. You know, here we're kind of talking about, um, you know, with Rise of the Guardians, it was definitely more on the naturalistic side, and obviously reference was heavily used. Um, but here you're saying that, you know, you're taking a shot with your your daughter of reference that you're now going to use and interpolate from that. So it's not a one-to-one -one that you're doing so how, you know, as you're looking at that and animating, what's your philosophy and thoughts on reference and doing exactly what you just mentioned there, interpolating it to be able to adapt that to your shot? That's a really good question. <laughs> That's probably the usually with my students the most. Um, I think for me, reference isn't, yeah, you want to try and set up a camera that's close to what your shot is and get something in there. Um, the idea is, though, your character's proportions are always going to be more or less different than yours, um, especially if, you know, depending on the age also. So I'm not always going to be able to hit the exact pose or the exact posture that my character needs to. So what I try to take out of reference um, is the mechanics of it, of meaning how things move and the timing, kind of how things affect, like how well, you know, a foot's tipped down, um, the hips kind of shift this way or that way, what happens with the overlap of the chest, and the head, and then I try to take that information, basically that motion, interpret that into the actual character's rig and their posture and make it applicable to them because the worst thing that could happen if you take it one for one, like on panda, for instance, if you took one for one, it would look like a person in a huge panda suit. Okay. Within a person's motion in a two-ton, you know, panda bear. So I think the important thing is not to try to scope it as much as it is to interpret the actual motion, kind of your timing and your spacing, and then try to put that onto your CG character. Okay. I want to plug your, your blog here. Can you give us the web address? So it's animation-addicts.com. Right on. Yeah, I noticed um, that you've been posting quite a bit of stuff in regards to even that, I know there was a post in regards to uh, using your reference. So I definitely wanted to plug that so we can get that out there and that information. Maybe we'll come back around to Rise of the Guardians. But since we're talking about your blog, what made you want to start doing that? Uh, well, I've been teaching with anime for around two years now. And um, it's funny, a lot of the students kind of always ask me, where do you get information from? And, you know, what's out there? Where can we look some stuff up? And I found that I really didn't have any sites that I went to a lot of time. There was a lot of stuff that dealt in kind of the rumors and <clears throat> excuse me, the critiques of the industry and film and, you know, things that should go unnamed. But there wasn't something that dealt in actual information um, and all the stuff that I found interesting. And I felt that I wanted to share that with people um, just because I didn't, I didn't see what was out there. And a lot of time it was for profit. And I kind of just wanted to give it out there and, try to share as much as I can with people because I remember when I was young, very young, long time ago, there was nothing, there was no information out there. There were no books that were accessible. There was nothing, there was no internet. So um, I think we take a lot of stuff for granted now to make sure that, you know, you kind of give back. Yeah. It's definitely been a neat resource. I, I've already been able to tell. And then that kind of goes into one of the other things that you've been doing here, which is that pay it forward. You just recently started that. We'll tell you what. Why don't you tell us about that a little bit? I think uh, I think it was Jamal. You got you know you guys know. Yeah. So he made a comment about so I don't remember who it was. Someone that was charging for it or something, and it reminded me when I just got into the industry and I would send my reel to animators, like feature animators at DreamWorks and Disney, and they took time to look at your reel and give you feedback. They were real cool about that. I mean, that was nobody. I was some kid out of school and. Um, they took their time to really look it over, give constructive feedback, and they didn't charge me for it. They weren't looking to make a quick buck off it. And I kind of found that, you know, it was one of those things where, again, you pay it forward. It's those things where someone did it for you, and it's just, why won't you do it for someone else? I mean, you can't, I mean, to a certain extent, yeah, we teach, and there's a structure to that. But to try it and, I think, um, really squeeze every last dime out of people, I think is a little bit extreme. And that 
you want to be fair. You want to be, you know, feel like you're doing a good thing. And remember that we're all trying to move together ahead to be better at what we do. And remembering that someone once took time from their very busy schedule and their family to do the same for you. It just seems, you know, fair to do it. No, it's been very cool. And and so you, you just recently recorded them and got them out to some of the people. Is that how it worked or what? I didn't think it was going to get that big of a response the first time. And then I made the mistake of whoever submitted got a review. <laughs> I'm not <laughs> I'll let people submit and I'll select one person. It was just like, I had so many people that I was just like, I, I'm, I almost needed to bring someone else to help me out. And I was like, no, I'll do it all. And it just took forever to record it and edit it and send it out to people. Okay. <laughs> how, how many people did you get? It's going to go a name. I had to actually, at the end, there were some people that I knew and I was like, listen, I know your stuff. You're good. I, I, got to have to put you on off for another month because there's just too many people like I teach to the website and actually work the thing that pays my bills and then do this and I was just like I had to do it during the holiday I think I did most of it during the Thanksgiving holiday so you're definitely paying it forward then huh (laughs) absolutely no that's very cool are you gonna be are you gonna post them on your site as well I don't know if everyone wants to watch someone's review Mm. Um, so I'm just going to do like a, I think a small trailer for the next month so people can check it out and see what it's about. And then when people can submit for the following time. Okay. So animation addicts.com. Check that out. Good resource. Okay. Back to some of your other movies. I got a question here. What has been one of the favorite characters you've worked on? And I'm thinking that back. Uh, I would, I would say Sophie. Okay. Yeah. Why I mean, is that? It was personal. Um, I, you know, what we do takes a lot of time. I, you know, you could be at work from 10 to 12, 13 hours a day. And then um, it's, I get to watch my daughter, basically. I see her on the screen. Uh, I get the reference up. Uh, I get to see her and my wife. And, you know, I kind of modeled, like shaped her based on my daughter's features. So for me, it was something very, very personal. Mm. And, uh, I cared a lot about the character and I tried to infuse as much of her into it and just um, try to te- you know, treat it with as much love and care as I could. So for me, I guess that's probably the one I care about the most. So since that character was so personal, but how do you, how do you like tap or unlock uh, like a, a different character's personality or a different character? Like how do you make that character uh, interesting? Um, it's funny. I, I do, I do best usually when I can find something unique to focus on on the character, like on uh, Kung Fu Panda 2, I worked a little bit with the wolf boss. And uh, when I was working on that, the, the supervisor that I worked with uh, that was really cool was Rudolf Ganaden. He um, really had this idea of putting into it what was in Uguay uh, on the first panda, like that, the turtle, a little bit of Parkinson's, you know, and the lip, licking of the lip stuff. He wants something very unique. And uh, so he kind of suggested I do a little bit more canine. And I found that when I try to infuse that with human and really bring something a little bit more feral to it, it it, it ate my interest in the character more because it made it something a little bit more unique than, than kind of generic, you know, like, like we're talking about a guy in a suit. And um, usually with that kind of stuff that's kind of sparks my interest, I usually just kind of dive into that and try to make it the best I can. It's like, in, I think, in live action to a certain extent, you want to find out something unique about that character, something that really defines who they are so you can connect to them. And then that way you can figure out who they are and kind of where, where they come from and where they're going and kind of it slowly unravels and, and builds up how they would do stuff and you get a better sense of who they are and you can connect with them a little bit more. How did working on Rise of the Guardians differ from maybe some of your past projects? Um, it was a challenge. It was a challenge because it was... A, the character count was insane. Uh, like I said, I was dealing mostly with the kids, so I had a lot of shot where there was, you know, five, six kids, mm-hmm. and, and um, the schedule was really tight, so that stuff had to be um, executed very, very well, a very high standard. We had some of the best animators at the studio in the film, so they were... Um, I don't want to use profanity on on, uh, on the cast, but they had a saying, uh, they call it spline effing uh, to the point where every little thing was you know minutiae to death and um, doing that kind of quality and on a timely you know uh, basis with not the most productive software was very very taxing right because i know uh alexis mentioned that you guys are with how to dream dragon 2 that you've got just now jumped to the new software right 
the last software was fine. It's just it was um, it was a little bit slow, and it, I I worked in it you know as been as long as I've been at the company. I have no problem with it. It was just that um, this show was so massive and in its demand. I mean, and executing at the quality that they wanted. I think if you really look at that film, there are films where you watch the background characters, certain films, and the characters are just literally looking screen left and screen right sometimes. Which is fine because it's good; it doesn't distract. But this movie, they really wanted to have almost like a visual effects, live action feel to it. And if you look, I swear every character is doing something. <laughs> no animation; everything was unique per shot. It was crafted for that shot. So it was just every shot was from scratch. Uh, you couldn't use anything, so it was just very, very demanding on I think the animation team as a whole. Mm. Well, I know I mentioned this on the podcast with uh, Alexis, but I'll mention it to you as well because you worked on it. I really, really liked the film. I talked with Rick. He really enjoyed it too. And so far, everybody I've talked to that's seen it has really enjoyed it. And I even mentioned it that the theater that we were at afterwards, people were standing up and, and applauding. So I think it really shows. You know, I know there was obviously probably times you felt like pulling out your hair during the, the protection, but the payoff, I think, as far as how well the movie turned out has been really, I think, worthwhile. Uh, I'm, I'm really, really proud of the work that I did on it. And I think a lot of people are proud of the work they did. I think the accomplishment on a technical level is actually quite impressive. I was, I would say probably that, um, if you don't mind me cutting, I was going to say it felt a little bit more mature in, in a way of portraying the characters, you know, the characters felt there wasn't like that typical gag, uh, in the movie. It, it, the characters felt a little bit more mature but i mean still for a young audience but but the way they portray themselves on screen um i thought it was done really well i mean mm-hmm. personally i didn't really know uh, about jack frost but i didn't i didn't think of uh, about him like as a snowman i just thought of like about this new character and, and the way they portrayed him was very i felt very original i didn't pick that up that quickly and and I thought it was really well done, especially being a holiday movie. It's, it's a it's a challenging thing, and I thought everyone did a, a great job in the characters. Really, really, really strong uh, and dedicated team on that show. I have, I mean, it, it took its toll out like any good show. I think usually you find like behind the scenes <clears throat> on any studio and any film that this the movies that kind of stand out as quality or something that really impresses people. Usually the films that are usually the hardest to work on because the, you the artists get pushed the extreme to get it done and because they want to sometimes because they're inspired and and it is it, you know it's the positive is that you're proud of the work again but the road getting there is a little tough i know one of the things that alexis mentioned was the team on kung fu panda was a, a blast you felt would you say something similar to the team that you're able to work on not just talent wise but just the atmosphere of this one here as well um yeah i mean i again i was pretty i worked alone a lot uh unlike alexis he had worked on uh, Tooth Fairy. He had a team. Because Sophie's role in the film was so minimal, um, I was lucky enough to be kind of uh, left alone and just work on her for pretty much the whole film. And it ended up doing, again, like I said, I think it was like 70%. So I, I ended up, I, don't know, I wasn't an outcast, but I ended up kind of being in a situation where I would hear stuff a month later, like notes and stuff and that was happening in the show and all this stuff. I was basically just keeping my head down and working on it. I was having a lot of fun working with her. Um, so I don't know. I mean, I think there was a good team, and I had fun working on that character with the people I was with, on, especially on the kids' team. Because we had a great soup, Anthony. Uh, and, uh, yeah, it was a pretty fun team. Yeah, I mean, I enjoyed myself. Very cool. What other characters have you enjoyed working on besides Sophie? Uh, well, Poe I really enjoyed on Panda. And then Wolf Boss was a lot of fun. Um, a lot of fun, actually. Yeah, on Shrek, I, I had a good time with Shrek. He was an interesting character. He was a little, it was different because he was like this iconic character and then work on it up to all these years. But there's all these rules about what Shrek does and doesn't do, uh, which was something new for, I think, a lot of people at the studio because he's a legacy character. Mm. All these rules is, and people know him so well, suddenly you're, like, you're limited by what you can do. You can't just make stuff up on the fly. But it was a lot of fun. Uh, I think the neat thing about that, though, is that it kind of establishes them as a person to a degree, not, you know, obviously human, but as as a personality, I guess I would say. And I think that's part of what we try to do in animation is that mimicking life. No, no, yeah. But funny enough, though, uh, when I out myself here on on the podcast, 
we we cheated a little bit on Trek Four. I was on a team with uh, who was it with uh, a few of the animators, and and um, one of them uh, reshaped Shrek on a few of the shots that he was working on. So Shrek is technically model because we made him a little bit appealing. And if the Hoka got a hold of you, Jason Rising, who's a sweetheart, if he got a hold of you doing that, we just had to be able to tweak it past him so it got through lighting. <laughs> You know, you kind of shrink her nose. I think we shrinked. Was it? No, we made the nose a little bit bigger, brought it back, changed the shape of the mouth a little bit. So, just if you watch it, you compare it with like Shrek Three. He just seems a little bit more appealing, a little bit more rounded, and a little bit more proportionized, especially in the jock area. Nice. <laughs> a little late. So I'm hoping it's okay. Yeah. <laughs> it's out on DVD. There's nothing they can do about it now, huh? Um, Wolfman. What was so appealing about him? What, what did you enjoy about him so much? It was. It was just a nervous energy, and uh, once I got to play with him a little bit and really get that nervous energy into him with, like, the canine stuff, it became a little fun. Like, I was able to start doing the stuff where he kind of licks his lips and becomes a little bit more submissive, and suddenly it went from uh, me kind of just acting it out to being something very unique. Because, again, it was that point where you kind of, you know, close the door, you record yourself, or you get someone to record in that thing, you try that into you. Um, your character, but then it's always, there's nothing unique about it. And once I infused, I actually took some reference from YouTube of a dog lying on the ground, kind of breathing and panting. And then I super, like, just took that together with the reference I shot of myself and put it together. And it became something that was very unique to that and very different. And suddenly, I don't know, it stopped being just, you know, a CG puppet. It kind of came to life for me. And I found that to be a lot of fun. What kind of shots you prefer working on, or is it does it matter? I mean, do you prefer more comedy, more sincere, more sinister? This is the thing. I get a lot of comedy shots. I'm not really funny guy. <laughs> like I'm the least, like you ask people where I'm like the least comical, least happy guy, and it's like I get these shots that I'm like, why do I get these shots? Um, I like I like them all. I mean, to me, the way I think of animation, I think of it in a mechanic sense. So. Either way, it all kind of comes down to the same thing. It's a you know bouncing ball. It's a you know things with overlap and follow through. Once you get your reference working, once you get your idea and your plan working, it just becomes a matter of executing the shot. Okay. And that to me, it all becomes the same kind of thing. Really quickly about your reference, do do you like acting out your shot, or do you prefer like digging, uh, you know, like through YouTube and finding reference that would work, uh, you know, that would work with your shot? I think it depends on what the shot is. If it's a shot that I feel like I have an idea for it, I'll act it out. Most of the time I'll go in with another animator that I really trust into the recording room. Um, and then I'll have them do a pass, and then I'll have myself do a pass and see which one I prefer. Unless, uh, you know, it's a supervisor. Sometimes there's certain characters that the supervisors want to shoot reference of themselves, and they want you to use that. So they might let you give kind of your own ideas of what could happen, but they want to be the person recording it so um, the cons- it's consistent throughout the whole film, the motion of it. Hmm. Okay, goes back to, you know, you're saying kind of least funniest guy there. How do you then ad- adapt to a shot that is supposed to be comedic? How do you pull that out then? Something that you maybe you're uncomfortable with or not normally tall? I rely on the boards a lot. I think storyboard artists are exceptionally talented. They are capable of incorporating and kind of um, containing one like a like a whole bunch of ideas into one pose a lot of the time. And if it's a really great board artist and you watch a film and boards and you laugh or you feel something for it, you get emotional, the board artist did something really phenomenal in that one drawing. And in the timing, maybe perhaps between one switch to another. And I think Looking back at those is always a good base to see what's working, what's not. A good example is on Panda. I had a shot on the second one where Matt talked about his dad. And uh, like he never knew his dad because his mom ate the head. And I did the shot. And in the boards, it was funny as hell. It was funny. And then I did the reference. And I showed it to my supervisor, Rudolph. And like, I'll never live this down. He looks at me. He's like, God, you killed the funny. You- <laughs> <laughs> like, I knew it wasn't funny. I knew it wasn't funny. And I looked at him like, he's like, you just freaking killed the funny. So I went back to the boards and I was like, I looked what made it funny, just the timing and really simplifying some of the work. So I went through and just, you know, cleaned out a lot of the animation, took out the 
you know, the animation aspect of it and kind of relied on the sharpness of the timing and the switch of the poses to bring the comedy back into it. And it did. So, um, well, you got to laugh. So I'll say that much. (laughs) (laughs) So good at observing, you know, maybe what was funny then. Our job is not always to reinvent the wheel every time. It's to understand, um, I think, the, the, the shot's role in film. And I think it's really important to remember that not every shot needs to be a 10. And what I mean by that is not every shot needs to be at the volume of a 10. It doesn't have to be vibrating, always busy, always <clears throat> something happened. Sometimes the quiet shots are the great shots. You know, some of my favorite shots in films are in shots that you might consider A shots. But the way they're cut into the film with the music and the render and all the effects, to me, those are the iconic shots of the film. So understanding the role of your shot is in the film and the sequence and knowing what you need to do is really important and usually will help you kind of navigate what needs to be done and, and do the best job on it. Okay. You want to describe a little bit your workflow? My workflow. Uh, so it changes on the shots a lot of the time. Uh, on complex physics shots, we have a lot of characters. I might do everything in um, layered method where I'll take the roots and just kind of move them uh, just to get a sense of the timing, the choreography of the shot. But for... Most shots, I'll shoot reference. Well, let me say that. Let me back. Uh, I'll get the launch from a director, and then I'll kind of get all the input, and then I'll start drawing some thumbnails. Um, and like I mentioned on the post on the site, um, it's not thumbnails for keys. It's just looking for idea, almost to a certain extent like a storyboard idea, that one idea that might be entertaining and that might sell the shot. And then after that, uh, I'll go into a reference room with someone uh, or by myself, record the reference, and take the best take, and then just sit and animate the thing. And what I usually do is, uh, uh, depending on how much time I have, if it's really crunch, I'll do it on fours or on eights. Uh, if I have a time, I'll probably go on twos straight ahead. I would just work on the body and not the face. If you can sell the performance, I think, um, in the body, in the mannerisms, the face is kind of just kind of the icing on the cake. Okay. Now, how do you feel straight aheading on twos? How does that help you then? Or why do you prefer that method, I guess? Because uh, I used to, I love animating, as you can tell, Animation X. I love animating to the point where I tend to over-animate the hell out of everything. Hmm. Um, I love overlap. I love follow-through. I love showing that I can do it and (laughs) totally get caught up in the spline forever and ever. Um, The problem with that is it's not always benefiting the shot, like I said. So I think what reference gives me in straight ahead, it limits me and it locks me into doing what the shot needs versus what I want to do. And that makes sure that the shot benefits 100% from my from my talent and not my ego, I would say. So I get across what needs to be there without all the embellishments and all the flutter. And once the blocking is correct, I'm locked. It's okay. I can go in there and finesse it, but I won't be adding a crap load of overlapping the arms and swooning left and right and drag on the head and all that stuff. So for me, it's more like a, um, a check system. Kind of keeps you contained. Yeah, absolutely. You know, making sure I don't go crazy. <laughs> One of the things I wanted to talk with you about here, and I thought it was a fantastic post. I think it was on your site. So we'll, we'll have to see if we can find that. But just an article that you had posted about animation being difficult. And back when you were going to school, the thought of going to school for a year or two and being done and thinking that, Hey, I'm going to, I'm arrived now was, was not even on the table. Yeah. I know what you talk, talk about making it. That was a post. It's funny. That post came up in one of the classes. One of my students, I'm not going to mention the name, made a comment of, um, you know, they had gone to a school and then when they didn't hit it big, there was a little bit of disappointment in the family. And I'm like, I thought that was completely unfair. When I went to school, you know, in 2D, it was just like, you were going to go to school just to prepare you for the industry start doing cleanup or in-betweens and then you were planning to spend you know four to five years doing that stuff a lot of the time before you even became an animator and then you know just an animator so there was this thing where there was a almost like an apprenticeship kind of development stage to it where you you confidence skill builds up equally and you're not kind of just thrown into it and done it and you know some studios do it some studios don't i think disney has an interesting thing where um, they do like their apprenticeship program you know, probably gives the people confidence and, and slowly prepares them for what needs to happen as compared to just throwing someone a deep end because the stress is, you know, people start staying insane hours that they don't register 
and that doesn't benefit them because a it skews their like their footage it makes it look like they're doing much more than they are and then also they're not getting faster they're just putting more hours and um it's a situation where you need to learn to become efficient in the workflow without the stress of feeling that if I don't do this right off the bat, they're going to fire me. And I just seeing the stress that a lot of people are under these days, having to hit it right out of school is quite ridiculous to me. Like, no, I graduated out of Sheridan in 2000 and I didn't even hit features until like, you know, what was it like four years later? I was bumming around doing, you know, God knows what until I was even cracking to features. So, I think the reason why I like that post so much is just that I, I, I don't know, maybe just our society or what we try to push is it's almost this idea that instant on instant off, it, we want things here and now without, and I'm not saying people don't pay their dues because I mean, something like I am, it's very, very difficult, but just the idea, like you're saying that to think that, okay, once we're done with wherever you go to school, that I've arrived without going, there's still a lot of training involved. And I think a lot of times, particularly with, you know, just animation in general, just learning it, it's, it's a tough discipline to learn is my point. For me, it's funny because I mean, when I got to DreamWorks, I, I never thought, Oh, this is, I made it. Like I was like, God, I'll be lucky to last six months. Uh, that was my first thought. And, and I had already done two features and it was like my learning only really begun when I got to DreamWorks. And it's funny. I think what you mentioned about, going to school and then you make it to the studio. But the funny thing was, I think a lot of the schools may be online or brick and mortar. There, there is a danger that's kind of starting to come that I saw while I was at CTN on people's reels. Like people are getting really good at moving stuff around, but it's just moving around. Like really giving it personality and something unique. I'm not seeing that in almost any reels. So you just see people that are, you know, everything kind of looks the same. I saw maybe the 15 or 20 reels at CTN and I swear can't remember half of them because they were almost all identical. And because the rigs were identical, it was because the movements were identical. It's like a template. And it was nobody takes into consideration that if you have a two character shot, that each character should be moving differently. There's something unique about each one. Their personalities would really reflect how they move and why they move. And it's kind of being lost. And it's funny, I, I kind of got that stuff back into me by the 2D guys, you know, Rudolph and all those guys that. I just like, nah, man, stop just moving around for no reason. Put something unique, give it purpose, give it personality, give it life. And I think it's it's a dangerous kind of slippery slope we're hitting now where people are just becoming, I think, infatuated with the idea of moving stuff and not making it move with, you know, reason. Uh, yeah, I think, again, so making it, so yeah, you can move stuff around, but to really, I guess the question is, what's your goal? Is your goal just to be, at DreamWorks or at Pixar or at Disney or at Blue Sky, or is it to be a really good animator? For me, it was, yeah, I wanted to get to DreamWorks and I wanted to work on films, but for me, it was always, I wanted to be good. I want to continue to learn. And there was never a thing that ever arrived. It's always that, God, I need to keep learning. I need to keep getting better. I got to figure out why my stuff doesn't look like hmm. stuff. What is the missing factor? So for me, it's always going to be a thing where it's like, got to keep getting better, but I keep studying and finding what's missing from the work. Yeah. No, I really, I, I, like I said, I really liked the article. I thought it was really good. We'll have to point to there as well. It just really put a kind of a reality check on kind of what just, you know, like you said, what seems to be kind of happening in the education industry as far as, um, at least maybe within animation is concerned that there is a, a matter of still progressing and learning and, and that drive, you know, yeah, I think I think it's weird. I think a little bit maybe. I mean, I don't know if it's because it's CG or two D. Um, maybe a little bit of the craftsmanship, the artists, and all of it became a little bit less. You know what I mean? It's become more of an execution industry now, where you need to be good at executing, which is really important. And I, I more than anyone, kind of infuse that into my students. I mechanics, you know, time spacing needs to be right. There needs to be purpose to it, and I think that artistry of what we do maybe is getting a little lost and you know, I, hope, I hope it comes back a little bit more. Well, that's kind of what I was even hitting upon when I was talking, when I mentioned uh, Samantha Yusuf, that kind of bridging that gap in, or, or maybe, maybe a better term would be infusing what was in 2d and what made it so good into CG. You know, we've got, I mean, obviously, you know, look at rise of the guardians, it, the craftsmanship is there 
but across the board on you know maybe some other movies where the craftsmanship is there as well but like you're saying just not that what makes that character believable or or um not just believable but um you take away with it i know samantha she's she's extremely talented we went actually to school together she was i think she was two years after me extremely i mean even in school she was phenomenal um but yeah i think it's funny it's it's a lot if you look at a lot of stuff out there it's a little bit homogenized i mean i'm not going to call things out but it's just, and I, don't, I don't think it's the artist's fault. I don't think they don't want to do better or do greater or make it unique. It's it's kind of just what is expected from the studios and kind of what directors want. They want it to look like this thing. And they want it to look like this thing. A lot of people are just, I want to imitate the last big thing so my thing will be as successful. And everything starts to look very, very similar to the point where it's, you can't even tell it apart anymore. Mm. I visited Jamal Bradley when he was still over at Disney and he had a picture from... Uh, something that I guess Glenn Keane had mentioned. I forget. I don't know if it was Ollie Johnson who said it to Glenn Keane. But basically the idea was like he, he had shown Ollie Johnson something. And he's like, yeah, you know, that's that's good animation. He's all, but it doesn't really entertain me. Yeah. You know, and the idea was that, yeah, you're you're executing it right. But okay, so what after that? I mean, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying everything's like that. I mean, there's been some phenomenal movies this year. And like uh, two of my favorites, definitely Paranormal. My top favorite this year. I thought it was, and there was something so unique and everything in that film. And um, I think you know things move for a reason in that film as well as a great story. And I kind of would like to see that in a lot of the CG films as well. Right, right. Rick, you got anything? Sorry, I've been talking a lot here. <laughs> uh, no, no. This this has been uh, a great podcast. But um, I had one of uh, animators asking, "What can an animator do to become better?" And this is something I like to ask. A little like to all the instructors or to any animators out there, um, Tal. What do you think an animator could do to become better? Like, is there something that he can do often or read up on or draw or something? What What would you suggest? I would honestly suggest practice. Unfortunately, what we do, um, I think there's this great quote by Bill Tidal where he says, "There's no particular mystery to animation. It's actually quite simple, and like anything simple, it's probably the hardest thing to do." Um, like any art form, it just requires a lot of practice and just challenge yourself to do stuff that you would never do. Challenge yourself to do something that's different and maybe do a like a mechanic shot that you never do, do a simple shot that you would never do. Do something that kind of flexes your muscles and every time you try and learn something new from it. Just, I would say, study film. I mean, there's these great snippets that were done uh, for the New York Times magazine few years back you remember those larry i mean yeah uh, i think i posted them on the site somewhere in those um with javier Bordeaux and a few others it was just phenomenal performances it was all silent but it was these actors who were portraying these very small moments and watching those things and trying to analyze what made them unique what those actors performance brought those characters to life in those few seconds um and trying to interpret that into animation i think is something that would you know, benefit any animator, help you push yourself and learn what makes characters come to life. You've been um, with iAnimate since day one, when we, back in 2010. Um, is there anything that you've kind of felt like you've shared pretty consistently across the board? And is there anything that you've felt like now, you know, having taught two years under your belt that you've kind of felt like this is something new I want to share? Um, I mean, the thing I probably taught the most was mechanics, just timing, TY, translation-wise probably. The thing that I keep everybody about is like the bouncing ball theory. You know, giving characters genuine um, uniqueness it, a lot of time comes down to a simple thing of weight. And it's something that I keep hammering to my students. Um, and coming up in the next couple of blocks, I'll probably focus a little bit more just on theory of acting, I kind of want to bring something that's really start to challenge the students to try to bring something kind of different and not reproduce what they've seen in the other stuff. Um, and I have a few things planned uh, that I want to surprise them with on day one, so it should be fun. Okay. <laughs> so we can't talk about it right now. <laughs> I don't get scared just yet. <laughs> now, what workshops have you taught so far? Facial acting. Uh advanced body mechanics, full body acting, and then I'm going to do now both full body acting and I think facial mechanics, like facial, also facial again. Okay. 
Is there anyone that you've preferred better or I wouldn't say better, but you've maybe just enjoyed more or. No, I mean, for me, they're all interesting. Uh, it, it just depends again. I think in mechanics is so important. Uh, and because when you go to any company, a lot of the time you'll be told what to do and you can try and put a little bit of what you want in there, but some companies are very, you know, if you have very controlling supervisors or very controlling directing animators or directors, they can be very micromanaging. So some of that stuff might be out of your control, but the thing that's always in your control is your execution. I know I kind of had to reverse in like a while back, like, you know, 10 minutes ago, but given the opportunity, if you can be creative, be creative. If you're not, the thing that you need to rely on is at least you can do the execution properly. So I find that it doesn't matter what workshop I'm in, it's always kind of repeating that to them. Mm. Um, you haven't come from a brick and mortar school. What is it that you've maybe enjoyed about iAnimate being online or I can actually talk like when I was in school, it was right when the industry was exploding. Like DreamWorks hired a massive amount of people. Disney was, it was like the big competition. So there was, the teachers weren't exactly uh, top of the notch. Uh, so um, I was kind of bummed that I didn't really have people that had animated teaching me animation. It was the most ridiculous thing. So I the fact that there are industry professionals like myself that can bring proper information to the students and when hopefully they're benefiting from it and it's not that you know, they'll do animate and have to go somewhere else to learn again. Hopefully when they come, they get what they need to get and that it serves them in really moving forward mm -hmm. for me. Very cool. That's actually why one of the reasons we did a podcast, my brother and uh, Jeff, and wanting to take it from kind of some students' vantage point, and Daryl obviously being one of our first class graduates and not having a background in, in animation. He hadn't worked in animation before that, and how iAnimate was able to help prepare him for the jobs that he's had since then. Um, any closing thoughts, Tal? Any closing thoughts yeah uh, let's we're gonna go deep no <laughs> we just want to, to wrap it up but i thought you know give you an opportunity here if there's anything that else on your mind that you'd like to share with us um i don't know man uh i want to i guess i want to touch back again what you said uh the the post i said about making it i think the most important thing i think a lot of people want to do what we do they do it not because they want to be you know known for all the world, not that they want to make a lot of money. They want to do it because they love animation. Uh, I still love doing this. I love watching animation. I think it sickens my wife a little bit how much. I, <laughs> uh, I think it's just to tell people that art can't find their break to get in, just to keep at it. And remember that you're doing this not because you want to land a big job always, but because you love doing this. And it's about you becoming better at it. And sometimes just becoming better at it sometimes is going to help you get there and just focus on the small thing which is your your ability to grow as an artist is something you can actually control and then hopefully it will lead you to where you want to go and at least a little bit more fulfilled as an artist that you are able to improve become good and then hopefully reach your goal oh, that's very cool right on awesome well very much appreciate your time i know with the wife and little one and teaching and working it's very limited so we do really appreciate you joining us tonight thanks man all right well, with that we are out guys thank you very much again Take it easy. Right, thanks